If you weren't with us last Sunday, I want to encourage you to go back and re-watch the service. I've re-watched it three times. Now, not super kudo points for me. I have four little kids, so to get anything, I need to listen to it multiple times, right? So I went back and, and, and uh, re-watched it as well as participated in here. And the reason why it was important is because we presented before the church what we believe is the vision that God is calling us to for this next year. Um, we call it the For the City Initiative. And these are four things we believe that God is asking B4 Church to be a part of. Um, and, and when I say a part of, I mean financially giving to, rolling up our sleeves, putting our uh, time our talents and our resources to these four things. And I want to take a minute just to share with you again what they were um, and then encourage you to go back and listen to it. So the Four City Initiative has four primary objectives to it. Um, The first is this, poverty. We want to be committed to addressing the root causes of generational poverty throughout the Portland metro area in displaced communities and schools. We aim to do this by expanding our current after-school program from one to two schools and from one to four days per week by the fall of 2023. The second thing we feel God is calling us to is education. We are committed to increasing access to education, particularly for children worldwide. We currently provide education for 500 children around the world. Our goal is to double that by the end of next year for that number of 1,000 kids. The third thing we feel like God is calling us to is to be committed to building 10 new clean water systems with local partners for communities that lack access to clean water around the world. And the fourth, we are committed to planting and or revitalizing three churches in the Portland metro area. These are the things we believe God is calling us to as a community of faith. And as a way to sort of keep this on the forefront of our minds, um, we have these little fun boxes. And they have this thing on them that says, invest for impact. Um, invest not just your financial resources, but you, your talents and your gifts and the things that God has equipped you to do. Roll up your sleeves and help in an after-school program. Or um, Some of you may know how to build clean water systems. Awesome. I don't, but we need you. We would love for you to partner with us. And so these boxes are a way to remind you of the vision that God has called us to. And lo and behold, they open, which is awesome. And you can fill that with um, money, pennies, quarters, nickels, dimes, dollar bills, checks, stocks, and mutual funds. I don't know. You can fill it with whatever you feel like God is calling you to give to help further the mission of God into the city. Um, The reason why we do these things is because we believe God has called us to be his hands extended to the world, to help people flourish, and in doing so, help them know that there is a God in heaven who loves them, and his name is Jesus. So we want to invite you to be a part of that. You can grab one of these boxes in the common area. You can grab five of these boxes if you want. Um, We have one in our house, and again, it serves as an opportunity for our kids to also participate in this with us. So don't, don't, uh, don't forget to grab one on your way out. Okay. So, moving on from that and the great vision we feel like God has called us to, and we are going to continue our series now through the letter in the New Testament um, called Romans. Last week, if you were with us as well, um, the book of Romans sort of hits a crescendo in chapter 8. It's one of the most beautiful lines in all of the Bible, in my opinion. Um, And this is what it says. Paul says this at the end of Romans chapter 8. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, 
Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Where do you go from here? <laughs> like if you're Paul and you're writing this letter, this is kind of like a mic drop moment, right? He's like hit the climax of this letter. You might as well just hit the end and be done because there's so much here. It's this sort of pinnacle moment and yet the letter doesn't end. Paul does something really interesting. Um, even a natural train of thought, you might think, oh, maybe he would go here or maybe he would go there, but he does something that seems maybe a little odd or strange, he seems to take this hard right turn detour. And he spends the next three chapters addressing a really, um, a very real issue in the local church in Rome. So, a lot of scholars argue and um, debate about what these next three chapters are about. There's tons of different schools of thought and People I respect and admire and um, learn from disagree, but they all unanimously do agree on one thing, that it is all about one topic, and that is the people of God named Israel. Again, they debate about what Paul is saying, particularly what he's trying to accomplish, but they all agree that it is about one cohesive thought directed towards Israel. And they agree that this was a real issue facing the local church at the time. So today we have a pretty enormous task. We are going to try to look at three full chapters of the letter to the Romans in the next 23 minutes and 28 seconds. You have a better chance of getting through it than the last service did because I said that at 21 minutes at the last service. That's two whole more minutes, you guys, that I just wasted. Um, but for real, because it's a cohesive thought, we want to look at it in one cohesive moment. But there is no way I can actually walk through line by line, verse by verse, and all of you said quietly in your hearts, amen. We're going to look at the big themes and we're going to look at a few things in particular. My encouragement for you um, is go read it yourself this week. And you will have empathy for what I have been doing all week. No, go read it yourself because the unique thing about this section of Scripture, um, in fact, it was perhaps the hardest sermon I have ever prepared because of its breadth, because of what he's trying to accomplish, because of the challenge, the very clear challenge that he makes to the church, and then to try to summarize it in a very short period of time. I encourage you, go on that journey with me. Um, Although this is directed to the people of God, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, um, at its root, there is a deeper question that is being asked. And that deeper question is this, can God be trusted? See, many people in Israel really struggled with this question at the time because they were struggling with whether or not Jesus really could have been the foretold Messiah of the Old Testament scriptures. And see, this is the crossroads that Israel came to. Either God has gone back on all of his promises, and as such, he cannot be trusted, or all of God's promises to the people of Israel have been fulfilled in Jesus. And while they may have misunderstood, God still remains entirely faithful. 
This is the conundrum that they are facing. This is the crossroads that they find themselves at. And this is exactly what Paul is going to wade into. Okay, chapter 9, verse 1. Let's jump in. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul makes an enormous statement here. And he starts off by making sure you know, and I know, that we know he is not exaggerating, he is not being dramatic, he is not saying something to create hype. It's genuine. He says he's not lying, but then he also appeals to his conscience. What is conscience? Conscience is that part of your soul um, that distinguishes between what is morally good and right and what is not. It prompts us to shun what is wrong, and it moves us to crave what is right instinctually. But what we know as human beings is that our conscience needs a renovation by the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying here that a conscience that is shaped and transformed by the Holy Spirit is a reliable guide. By the way, I believe that this, after all, is what the world needs from the church a people whose conscience, directing them towards what is right and good, what God has deemed right and good, and moving us away from what is wrong, is desperately what the world needs from the church. But Paul says his conscience is about to confirm this statement he is about to make. But before that, he also prefaces it with saying, I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Hear me, this is beyond having a bad day. Like Paul is feeling a deep sadness, depression. This is what Paul loses sleep over. This is what he agonizes over. Why? Well, he says, For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race the people of Israel. His great sorrow and unceasing anguish is because many of his people have rejected Christ as their Messiah and as such are under the curse. This creates a problem, right? If Israel is cursed, it seems to contradict all of the Old Testament promises and blessings that God has bestowed upon them. And this is why many of them are struggling to accept Jesus. More on that in a minute. The word cursed It's a Greek word, anathema. And there is absolutely nothing easy about what I'm about to say. The word means excommunicated, cut off from God's people, and as such, under the curse of damnation. See, Israel's problem, not all of them, but many of them, is that they have rejected Jesus as their Savior, and they are not saved. And this is what Paul says. I wish I could take their place. Hmm. Let that sink in for a minute. He says that he would choose 
to be eternally separated from God for the people of Israel. That's eternal hopelessness, eternal sadness, eternal anguish. No light at the end of the tunnel. See, even in our worst moments today, a spark of hope exists, and that is because we can have an awareness that God is still on the throne. He is still at work. Paul is saying that he would give all of that up eternally for his fellow Jews. Listen, I want to say, it's a moment of vulnerability, I want to say that I would say something like that for the people I love, for my friends, for my family, for my daughters, for my wife. I want to say that that is true. I would take a bullet for them in a heartbeat. I would do anything in the physical to save the people that I love, and even some people that I don't, and strangers, all right? But to be eternally separated from them and from God? To mean that? I don't know. Like, I'll take a bullet because I know where I'm going, and I know there'll be a reunion. But to say that I would be willing to set all of that aside for the good of somebody else, that they might know and be saved, that is a challenge. And I don't know if I'm there yet. In fact, I think it's a very rare place to be. If you're honest with yourself, as I was just honest with you, you might agree. It's a hard pill to swallow. Now, Paul indeed um, grew up around many of these Jews. They were his kin, his family, his friends. But for the second part of Paul's life, they were anything but kind to him. I'm going to run through a list and just help you understand the gravity of what Paul is saying here. Right? Paul has a miraculous encounter with the risen Jesus. And he gives his life to Jesus and to the desire to share Jesus with the entire world. And then right off the bat, his friends, his counterparts, try to kill him. Acts chapter 9. And then he has to run away, lowered in, uh, from a wall in Damascus in a basket. That's a wild story. Then a few verses later... Guess what? Second plot, same group of people try to kill him. Not very long after that, he's contradicted and maligned in Pisidian of Antioch. Paul and his buddy Barnabas, they were persecuted and driven out by the Jews in Pisidian Antioch. Um, In chapter 14 of the book of Acts, the Jews embitter minds of Gentiles against Paul and attempt to stone Paul in Iconium. In chapter 14, later he is stoned. He is left for dead by the Jewish leaders in Lystra. In Acts 17, he's forced out of Thessalonica. The text literally reads, the Jews were so jealous, they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Paul's then forced out of Berea because some of the Jewish leaders stirred up a crowd. They had to run for their lives. In Acts 18, Paul is brought before the judgment seat by the Jews in Corinth. The charges were later dismissed. In Acts 19, a riot arises concerning the way of Jesus in Ephesus. The Jews were present. They only instigated. They did not do anything to help. In uh, chapter 21, Paul is beaten with the intent to be murdered in Jerusalem. In chapter 23, the high priest strikes Paul in the mouth. And again in chapter 23, there's a plot, (laughs) a conspiracy Um, to kill Paul and to take his life. And again, in 25, there's a group of people waiting to ambush and kill him. Again, they are part of the Jewish 
um, leaders. So this list gives a significant gravity to what Paul is trying to say. Eternally separated for your family, your friends? Maybe. Maybe, just maybe, I would have the courage to say something like that. But what about your enemies? What about the people that set themselves up against you day in and day out? People who have stoned you, maligned your name, done everything to hinder your work, spread false rumors about you, beat you, tried to kill you and your friends multiple times. <laughs> that's who Paul says he would take their place for. Now that's a tough pill to swallow. Now, I want to be clear that this is not possible, by the way. Right? Like, so what Paul is saying here is not like an option on the table. And so we're not supposed to walk away and think like, this is an option on the table. Okay, all right, that's what it means to follow Jesus. But what we are supposed to say is this is what it means to love like Jesus. This is what it means to engage people like Jesus. So what does it teach us? Well, among many other things, this is one that particular stood out to me. Are you ready for this? There is no Christian justification for the hatred of another person. Just say that one more time. There is no Christian justification for the hatred of another person. It's ironic. For many years, these three chapters have been wrongly understood, and they have fueled a fire of anti-Semitism. Strange, right? Somehow, Christians have read them for hundreds of years and thought, this is why anti-Semitism is justified. It's the complete opposite what Paul is doing here, right? Paul is saying, no, no, no. I will give everything up for the sake of my fellow Jews. A passage that is supposed to teach us humility and sacrifice and love has somehow been twisted because of misunderstanding and used for hatred. And I want to be clear here that Paul is not a doormat, right? Paul's not like, well, I'm just going to let everyone walk all over me and that's it. Paul believed in accountability. He regularly engaged with the people that opposed him. I mean, the high priest punched him in the face because he called the high priest a whitewashed tomb, okay? Like, he, he, he's not just standing around. He's engaged, and he did apologize for that, by the way, because it wasn't very nice. But Paul's efforts were not to win. They were not to dominate and not to control and not to prove that he was better than anybody else. His motivation is the same as it is here. He loved them and he would sacrifice his comfortability, his safety, for the chance that they might be saved. So in that, he refused the all-too-easy road of revenge and retaliation. And instead, Paul fully embraced the way of Jesus. Are you ready for this? Love your enemies and pray for those who who persecute you. This is the way of Jesus, and Paul embraced it. How could he do that? Well, this is something that Paul understood. Paul understood that his battle wasn't against flesh and blood, meaning his battle wasn't against the people opposing him. Paul understood that there's a sickness that corrupts and infects us called sin, but he also understood that there's an enemy, a very real enemy, Paul, later on, he says this in one of his letters, that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but he talks about spiritual principalities and powers of darkness that work to move and manipulate behind the scenes human beings into evil and sin and to destroy and divide us. 
Some things about the enemy, the titles of the enemy, his name is the Satan, which literally means the adversary. He's called the father of lies. He's a fathering spirit. He's called the adversary. He stands against God and his people. He's called the accuser. It's that annoying voice that is always accusing you that you are wrong or bad. The tempter to abandon you um, and to abandon what is good and right. My favorite, the Lord of Dung, Beelzebub. Um, let that speak for itself, right? The deceiver. Um, to take you on a path that you think is right, but it's not. And he's deceiving you to that. A liar, to believe a lie. Um, the chief characteristic we find of this creature is host- in his hostility, his cunning power, and his evil intent towards God and his people. Paul understood that his enemy wasn't the Jewish people or the leaders or their ideologies. It was the spiritual forces that are trying to work against them, through them, and against him. And as soon as you begin to understand that, that begins to change how you engage the broken world around you. I'm like many of you. I live in this very real dirt world that has very real problems, right? The last couple of years have been rough. They've been like a magnifying glass to all of those. And I'm like you in the sense that when I see things, I get angry. I get frustrated I don't always know how to respond. And I've witnessed things personally, and I've had things done to me, to my family, with nothing but a pure evil intent to harm us. Listen, I have long fought the battle of internalizing my emotions. Anyone with me? You don't have to acknowledge that, right? This journey when I was younger was just about bottling up everything that happened and just, uh, I couldn't even, at some point something would break and I wouldn't even be able to articulate a response. It would just be this. <laughs> Anyone with me? I read a 16th century monk that said this one time. This is great. The first half of your life is trying not to break the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The second half of your life is led trying not to break the sixth. Thou shalt not murder. <laughs> His point is that the fiery passions of youth eventually transform into the anger of the state of the world. And anger at what hurt and harm has been done to you. And that anger eventually can turn to hatred. And that hatred, if left unchecked, can turn to rage. In the words of the famous philosopher Yoda, fear is the path that leads to the dark side. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. What is the antidote? What is the antidote? How do we engage like Paul to the broken world around us? If it isn't to just watch it all burn, sit on our hands, if it isn't to participate in the violence and the retribution, how do we respond? I don't remember exactly when it was, but a few years ago I felt a very strong Um, command from the Lord personally and he said this I want you to pray for the people you are angry with until your anger turns to compassion if you remember nothing of what I said today including the promise that I would somehow be done in 30 minutes (laughs) may it just be that pray until your anger turns to compassion When you can put a name and a face to your enemy, you know him or her, you know what they have done to you, 
You know how it makes you feel. It was unjust. It wasn't right. It shouldn't have happened. Justice is real. God is a God of justice. He cares. But is it possible to take that emotion you feel, that energy, and to allow God to do something in your heart that would transform you to a point where you have compassion for the person who did evil towards you? And then that compassion informs how you respond to the brokenness of this world, how you respond to the injustice. It changes your tone when you realize the person that did that has a story, that God is still at work in their life too. It changes your words because instead of retaliation and retribution, which is all too easy, right? Well, you, you stepped on my toe. Well, I'm going to punch you in the face. Like, I'm going to make it worse. Have you ever read the comments section and anywhere online? It's like, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. It's like, wow. The guy just said he doesn't like, you know, blueberries. It's just all of a sudden, it's like everything is wrong with the whole world. That is our natural tendency unless we allow what Paul says earlier, the renovation of the Holy Spirit into our conscience. Allow God to work and to shape and to change you. That was only four verses. (laughs) And it's not a deviation, right? I will try to sum up the entirety of the rest of these three chapters in a moment. But it's so important to understand. This is where Paul is coming from when he writes this whole section about whether God can be trusted or not. He believes it so deeply in his soul that he will abandon his safety, his security, and his comfort, and even emotionally connect with this idea that he could give away his eternal security for the good of other people who are stuck in darkness. And so he's going to address the question, can God be trusted? Now, we don't have time to go through all of that. Could you imagine if I decided to go line by line for like the next three chapters? Anyone want to do that? Just joking, don't say anything. Paul makes a thesis, um, and then he makes three points, and then he ends with a song. Um, He ends basically writing out the lyrics of a hymn, and in doing so, um, the response is a praise. So we're going to look at the thesis argument he makes, and we'll summarize the next three chapters in the thesis and the counter-responses to each one. Um, In Romans 9, 6, he says this, It is not as though God's word had failed. Here's his thesis. God is faithful and trustworthy. From here until 11.32, he will then respond to major questions that come from that. The first question is this. Has the word of God to Israel concerning her salvation come to nothing? And his response is, no. God has always chosen some among Israel to be his people of promise. In verse 6 through 7, For not all who are descendants of Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Now, if you know the story of Israel, this helps a lot. But what he is basically saying is there's some natural-born children of Abraham that inherited the promises of God, and they became the spiritual family of Abraham. And then there are some natural-born children of Abraham who did not. He points to Sarah and Hagar. Sarah was a woman of the promise of God. He points to Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the son of promise. He points to Jacob and Esau. Although Esau was born first, Jacob would be the inheritance of the promise 
of God. And again, he's pointing out that God is choosing to work through a group of people just because you're a part of Israel does not make you true Israel. Why? Why does God do that? Why does he choose to pick some and not others? Romans 9.16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So among this, a challenge now arises. If that is the case, if God is choosing who is the inheritance of his promise of salvation and who is not, is God unjust? Is it not fair that he gives his mercy to some and not to others? And if we're without choice, right, then how are we held responsible for anything that we do? Paul's answer is simple. Who are you and I to question God's justice? That's my Alex version of what he says, but it's in essence the summary of what he says. Who do we think we are? Okay, this gets a little confusing, but keep the whole letter in mind. On one hand, we're talking about the Jewish people are cursed because of their unwillingness, not all of them, but the ones who don't receive Jesus, right, to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. In other words, it's their choice. But then on the same token, he says, well, yeah, but then God chose some of them and not others. So which is it? (laughs) And the answer is yes. (laughs) It is undeniable that the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign and overall, and yet in his sovereignty, our decisions still hold consequence. Paul affirms both of these. And what seems like a contradictory statement on the front page, he has to magnify God, and here's why. Because we are limited in what we can really understand. I don't know why the universe continues to expand. Do you? No. I don't know what's on the dark side of the moon. You don't either. Good song, by the way, I guess. See, listen, I find myself wanting to know these great mysteries of God and how they work themselves out. And there is no problem in wanting to know the Holy One. But Paul is speaking against the arrogant attitude that says ill of the character of God simply because our understanding is so limited. But Paul's point has been made. What God is doing now is consistent with what God has promised then. So instead of Jesus being a reason why people are turning away from God, Jesus is now the reason why we should towards, turn, towards, turn towards him because he has maintained faithfulness for every human generation. The next question arises, did God completely and finally reject his people? Paul's response, no, look around you. He actually says, look at me. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Hebrew. God saved me. He's at work saving the people around him. Why is this important to us? Because oftentimes we doubt God's faithfulness and whether we can trust him. And in other words, Paul is saying to them at the time when they were asking the same question, look around. If you doubt God's plans, just take a moment to look around at what God is doing. And the third question arises. Is the gospel incapable of saving the Jews then? Have they fallen beyond recovery? Paul's response? You guessed it. No. (laughs) The climax of God's fulfillment is in the future. 
Um, And he says this really amazing statement about how all Israel will be saved. There is so many debate about what he's actually talking about here. And we don't have time to get into it all. But what he is saying is a great awakening will come for the Gentile people and for the Jewish people. God will be at work saving his people. And he says that this is what in the Bible in the New Testament is called a mystery. A mystery. Um, a mystery is not like a mystery novel, right, where you don't know what happened. In the Bible, a mystery is when the purposes or plans of God, which at one point in time in the past were unknowable, God is making them known, right? But just because he is making them don't known doesn't mean we can fully understand every facet of it. Just because I can drive a car doesn't mean I know how the car works, right? But I know that it does because it got me here this morning, right? God's plan of salvation is being unveiled and it will continue to be in ways that should evoke wonder and mystery and joy in our life. See, and Paul finally finishes these three chapters. I got close to saying I would do it in the amount of time. That'll by far be the fastest summary of three chapters of Romans you ever get. By the way, he finishes this whole section And if you ever had the moment, Jamie described it earlier today where she was sitting on the floor and she had an encounter with God, where if you have an encounter with God, you can't even put it to words. You just know something is happening. And that's one of the reasons that happens when we sing on a weekly basis. We encounter God and something is happening. We don't even know how to articulate language to it. Here, Paul has a moment Right with God himself as he's talking about God's great plan to rescue the world, and he writes a song. So we're going to end our time together by reading these verses together. So would you stand with me? And they're going to appear behind me on the screen, and we'll read them together. We'll let this song of praise be our prayer. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him, all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let me pray a benediction prayer over you on your way out. May you be a people that embrace the mysteries of God, the plans long hidden but now being made known. May you be a people that are for this city, for people the way Paul loved Israel. May you be a people who know at the core of your being that God is trustworthy and faithful. And may you be a people who know that God is still at work saving people, even the ones who are not savable in your minds or who are outside of the box. And may you be a people who reject fear and have a firm hope in God for the future. In Jesus' name, amen.